Before we get to the episode today, I want to acknowledge what's going on in Afghanistan right now. There's so much I could say about how we very much fucked up, but I want to focus on what we can do to help right now. So it re- base, help basically comes down to three things, donating, volunteering, and advocacy. Interestingly enough, Self Magazine's website has a pretty comprehensive article about organizations you can donate to, volunteer for, or who are advocating for Afghan refugees right now. And you can support those organizations by donating to them, volunteering for them, or advocating alongside them. NPR also has a good, though less comprehensive article, and I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Personally, I am not in a position to donate money, so I reached out to a few organizations to try to donate my time. Primarily, getting my TEFL certification right now and tutoring English, wow, I said that like I don't speak English, English might be most helpful, but I can also mentor refugees in a few areas. So the organizations that I reached out to are Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, Church World Service, and Homes Not Borders. But I'm also going to look into more local organizations. Um, I also really want to start donating reusable menstrual pads, but I don't know yet if that would be the most helpful use of my time. So... Please check the links in the footnotes to find the articles as well as the organizations I reached out to. They do tend to be faith-based, but don't let that put you off. Okay, now on to the show. Hi, I'm Madeline. Welcome to Stregaria, an American witch in Italy. When I see a bug out and about, I don't usually think much of it, except that I hate them. But bugs exist, especially when I go outside, and so that's that. Around the time I did the tarot reading I did for myself last episode, I was being harassed by a wasp. No, I can't prove that it was the same wasp each time, but I'm pretty sure it was. And when I say harassed, I really mean that. (laughs) Almost every time I went outside for a few weeks, especially during a certain time of day, This wasp would at least make its presence known and at most land on me and scare the shit out of me. The first time it landed on me, I was wearing shorts and it landed on my leg. And so I got up and I screamed and jumped around like you do. And it just stayed there crawling around, not stinging me. Um, And I was screaming, it's going to bite me. It's going to bite me. These few weeks of harassment ended the night I went to a concert with my brother. It was the first concert I had been to in over a year and a half. Thank you, pandemic. And I was really looking forward to it, but I was also really tired that day. So I went outside to have a cigarette, and while I was sitting there, a nondescript giant bug 
came straight for my arm and bounced off of me. And I thought that it must have been a fly and I didn't see it anywhere, so I forgot about it. I went inside to lie down and listen to some music to get pumped for the concert. After about 15 minutes, I got up and guess what was on my bed? Legs twitching. That's right, the wasp. I swear it was the same wasp. And I'd laid on it and killed it. Well, I said my goodbyes and took the body outside. It wasn't squished though, which was kind of weird, but it was just, maybe it knew it was gonna die and landed on me because it loved me so much. It wanted to spend its last moments with me. Anyway, this experience has made me wonder what the significance could be. What do wasps symbolize? So what do you do but search the internet? I found a website called whatismyspiritanimal.com that had a post about wasps. So let's forget about the whole spirit animal thing um, because what it says is basically what most websites say. So here's what it said. It appears that wasp speaks to us of the paths we take in life, knowing what you're getting into and how to get out of it if need be. Characteristics for wasp spirit animal include, well, a lot of words, but here are the ones that stick out to me. Foundations, development, eye-opening, building, breakthroughs, advancement, planning, introspection, and progress. I cross-reference, like I said, with a few other websites, and they all seem to say the same thing. I think it's significant that this is what the wasp symbolizes for where I was and am in my life. Going to Italy was an exciting idea at the time, but it was before I had taken any steps toward it. The wasp stayed with me until I was sure, until I had officially decided, and then it left. Around this time, I did some looking into my needle chart. So to start, I am a Pisces sun, Leo moon, and Pisces rising, or ascendant, however you want to say it. I also have Pisces in my Mercury and Venus positions, but also I have Pisces in my north node position. Before looking into my natal chart, or even knowing what a natal chart is, I was into astrology like any witch kid. I knew I was a Pisces, and that basically was it, but I never identified with being a Pisces. So Pisces is the dreamy, sensitive, emotional, spiritual sign. When you read about Pisces, it's all about someone who has their head in the clouds and someone who's psychic or um, someone who's really tapped into their intuition, at least. I pictured a dreamy hippie lady. All this while I was listening to death metal and starting or participating in fights and honestly bullying at school. I, at the very least, did not think of myself as a spiritual person. It's complicated, but in short, I've always had a lot of beliefs, but never really felt them. The North Node represents the lessons we need to learn in this life, lest we succumb to our South Node characteristics, which is the opposite sign, which for me is Virgo. I have so much Pisces in my chart because, well, 
this is what I'm thinking. The universe wants me to learn something. I think I need to learn how to be a spiritual person in this life. Putting Pisces in my sun side and in my north node and everywhere else is a huge sign to me in this regard. So basically, Virgo, the south node, is what I came in with. It's a mutable earth sign, and it's all about analysis and order, being humble and modest. According to horoscope.com, which I had to go to because I know nothing about Virgos, people in this sign are kind and good planners. So here are a few things it says that are me. It's important to earn a Virgo's trust, but once you do, that Virgin, wow, Virgo, not Virgin, will be a friend for life. Virgos expect perfection from themselves, and they may protect those high, project those high standards on other people in their life. Intelligent and lifelong learner, Virgo loves to try new things, reading books, and learning about the world. A Virgo prefers an evening with good friends to a huge party and values downtime just as much as socializing. Also, Nas is a Virgo, so that's cool. Pisces people are, when I looked it up, some people I've never heard of, and then some basic-seeming pop musicians, and Albert Einstein. So I guess I have that. I must say, the perfectionism piece is so true to me. I have very high standards for myself and have had a hard time understanding people who don't also have high standards for themselves. And this has been the basis for quite a few, maybe, fights in past relationships. Not that I was super aware of it at the time, but looking back, yes, that's that was the problem. So, Virgo is the opposite of Pisces and is a sign I identify with probably more than Pisces. I do think that I'm an intuitive person and an empathetic person, but I think everybody is intuitive, and I think empathy is a skill. Intuition is a matter of listening to and acknowledging the intuitive body feel and then acting on it instead of ignoring it, or at least acknowledging it, or... So what I do is acknowledge my intuition and then ignore it, which is not good. Because once I had a job interview and nothing weird happened or anything, but I had a weird feeling about it, um, they offered me the job and I should have turned it down, but ended up working there for at most two months. And it was a mess for a number of reasons. And so not heeding your intuition is probably not the right thing to do. And I think that that might be why I'm, I mean, I'm definitely not psychic, but I have a philosophy that intuition is the entry point for developing psychic abilities. So I think anybody could be psychic because everybody has intuition. It's just a matter of developing those skills or building that muscle, I guess. So I also looked up Pisces on horoscope.com because um, I had never, well, I probably did this when I was 12, but it has been a while. 
And so on that page, it has top five reasons to love being a Pisces. The first one is about how we're intuitive. I mean, I already talked about how I'm bad at that. The second one is about our childlike view of the world, which I can't really relate to. I'm working on it, but I've always been pretty cynical and nihilistic. I think part of it is how I was raised. But I think another part of it is seeing the terrible state of the world and losing that childlike view over time. I mean, I was pretty young when I started being cynical, nihilistic. I think when I learned what the word nihilistic nihilistic was, I was like, oh, that's me. So I don't remember when that was, but at least high school, maybe sooner, earlier. So the third one is not being judgmental, which I don't think I am. So that's fine. I mean, at least I try not to be judgmental. I'm judgmental. I think I'm a healthy amount of judgmental because it's impossible to not be judgmental. Horoscope.com. Okay. Then there's the deep connection with nature. Number four. I have a couple of friends who love hiking and going into nature is church for them. I mean, I love nature, but I feel like I'm just so closed off. I have a hard time connecting to it like that. I, <laughs> this is so stupid. I definitely don't, and I quote, inspire people with the way you understand the rhythm of the seasons. What does that even mean? The last one is kind of hard for me to talk about. It says, quote, you don't care if people think you're cool, which makes you that much more impressive, unquote. Nowadays, I think there's more truth to that than in the past, but I'm thinking of college. So college was really hard for me socially. I loved my classes, but at first I had a really great group of friends and then for a few reasons, like coupling up or whatever, I needed to find new friends. Like our group kind of split off, I guess. And I didn't really go along with any of them because I wasn't dating any of them, I'll say. So I still love those people. And so no hard feelings or anything like that, but I definitely needed new friends. So, or a new group, I guess. Um, the new people I found were not very kind. And I would say they weren't nice either. And I would also say they treated me like shit. Um, but I didn't really recognize it at the time because of like emotional trauma. But um, I wanted friends. And I wanted these people that I was surrounded with to like me. And I don't think that that's bad, I guess. They were countercultural, so me wanting to fit in was bad, which is counterintuitive. But, and maybe I was trying too hard. I don't know. I didn't feel desperate about the time, but. You know when something happens to you and you can't sleep because you're thinking about that thing that happened 10 years ago that nobody else remembers but you still feel embarrassed by? Most of mine are from this time in college. So did I care if people thought I was cool? Of course. I actually don't think that this statement is true in general. Does anyone not care if people like them? I mean, other than sociopaths, 
who probably care because they want to lure you in so they can murder you or at least become a CEO of a Fortune 500 corporation and take all your money. I mean, okay. There are definitely some people I couldn't give less of a shit about, but for the people I like, I want them to like me too. I think that that's healthy and normal and part of the human experience. So I'm sorry, horoscope.com. I just think you're wrong about that. And I know there's so much more to your personality than your sun sign. But even looking at my other placements is super telling. So my Neptune, which is about intuition and spiritual enlightenment, is in Capricorn, which is very conservative and down-to-earth and practical. So when it comes to intuition and spiritual enlightenment, I'm instinctively practical and conservative, so I need to learn how to be more Pisces, but it hasn't been easy because I just, like I said, I just don't feel it. I don't feel it in my body. And so I've learned a lot about myself looking at my natal chart. I printed, I made, oh my gosh, this is how Virgo I am. I made a table with my, with the planets and points, I guess. And then keywords for that, the sign for me, and then keywords for those. And I printed it out and I put it up on my wall with, with definitions. And then I also printed out my actual chart. And I put that up so that anytime I have a question about what my chart says, I can just look straight ahead and see. So with the wasp and with my natal chart, it seems like the whole this whole project is the right path for me right now. Does my ancestry matter in my spiritual practice or is my local landscape more important? While there have been a lot of signs that going to Italy is the right thing for me, I'm also being fed a lot of information in the media I've been consuming that the magic of the land is what is yours and working with those spirits should be priority. And I'm honestly confused. Which is more important? In the second episode, I talked about how I feel that New Mexico kicked me out. I mentioned that Portland kicked me out too, but it wasn't in the same way that New Mexico did. New Mexico is where I grew up, though, and became a person. Would the magic there not be mine? I don't think it was. I find it beautiful and powerful, but not mine. I've also always been taught that in this field, honoring your ancestors and avoiding cultural appropriation are paramount to a successful and ethical witchcraft. When I found that book, Italian Witchcraft, that I've talked about before, I was so excited. I thought I had finally found my path. While I'm not surprised that it's not what I want or connect with, I've definitely been disappointed. I think both are important, but the matter of avoiding cultural appropriation is complicated. The best definition of cultural appropriation that I found, or at least the one that I like the most, is from verywellmind.com. It says, 
Cultural appropriation refers to the use of objects or elements of a non-dominant culture in a way that doesn't respect their original meaning, give credit to the source, or reinforces stereotypes or contributes to oppression. So when thinking about this in terms of witchcraft, I'm struggling to understand, for example, how burning sage is cultural appropriation. Here's what I mean. As a white woman, I am part of the dominant culture and burning sage is not a part of my culture. Okay, that I get. However, I don't think that by doing it in my private space, I'm reinforcing stereotypes or contributing to oppression. Since I'm alone and it is in my private space, I don't need to give credit to anybody, so, so that's avoided. I guess, at most, I'm not fully understanding its original meaning, but I wouldn't say I'm disrespecting it either. Also, if I'm to work with the spirits of the land that I'm on, wouldn't I want to borrow from the people who came before me who might have a better understanding of what does and doesn't work for connecting to those spirits? I guess I understand how wearing a Native American headdress as a Halloween costume is the kind of thing that a D-bag would do. I just don't see how I could possibly work with the spirits of this land without using some of the Native people's culture and practices. And I know that there is a distinction between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation, but what I am thinking isn't quite appreciation either. Because I'm not admiring Native practices. I would be participating in them with admiration and respect, but there wouldn't be a distance there. And also, if I'm supposed to not do something because it bothers people from the culture, what about the people from the same culture who don't care or even like it? So this plus honoring your ancestors is why I like eclectic witchcraft, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. When I heard about chaos magic, for example, I was really excited. I like the idea of taking pieces of different traditions and sources to be a successful witch, or in terms of chaos magic, people would say magician instead of witch. I think it's about doing what works and not following a specific path because I don't think these newfangled witchcraft traditions are for me personally. And on that note, the other question I've been thinking about lately is how much does the history of witchcraft matter in, pra in modern day practice? Okay, one of the main things that bothered me about studying anthropology in college of which I have a degree, was that there's no way for us to really know or understand ancient cultures and religions. For what? I don't think one can really understand a culture without seeing it or participating in it. And maybe even then, will you ever really understand a culture without being a part of that culture? But for two, we are distanced from these ancient and sometimes prehistoric cultures by so much time and sometimes space. We can describe the physical objects they left behind and guess at their significance, but we'll never really know or truly understand. Think about language as an example. Languages and how they're used change or completely disappear over time, which on a side note is why I think it's so silly that some people are so concerned with wording in spells. Like, 
you have to say a specific thing that they write on their website in a specific order or you have to say it in Latin or some ancient language. Like, come up with whatever your intention in terms of words, I think, matters more. Although there is something to speaking out loud. Um, But the thing is, and why I think this question of history and practice, modern-day practice, is so important is that worshiping the old gods is so key to so many practices in many different traditions within paganism. So here's what we seem to know based on my research. And keep in mind, it's very complicated, and I'm not going to go over everything, but I'm going to focus on Italian prehistoric cultures. Also, there's so much more I could say about these cultures, but what I'm interested in, here is their religious and spiritual practices. So first of all, and if I say any of these words wrong, I apologize. Um, the Naragic, see, that's why I apologized. Naragic civilization existed in Sardinia from approximately 1900 BCE in the Bronze Age. Sardinia is an Italian island north and west of Sicily, basically in the middle between Italy and Spain. They're famous for their Naragi structures, which were circular structures, most often created with flat, truncated rooftops, similar to those of other ancient populations. But with the earliest of these of this classification dating back to the 1900s BCE, mostly it's thought they're home dwellings. Megalithic graves, called giant's tombs, have been found throughout Sardinia also. They held dozens of people up to possibly hundreds at some locations. It's thought that the Nuragic people took so, such great care to remain close to their dead that the dead had maybe turned into gods. So that's speculation. Like I said, we'll never really know. But on one of the websites that I was reading from, it says this about their spiritual practices. Spiritual practices appear to have been most often related to the dead, connections to the afterlife, and rituals of water, as exemplified in the majority of architectural discoveries. Offering benches, stairwells to sacred springs, and enclosures of sacred waters are of greatest interest, as are the possible beliefs concerning the magical properties of the water therein. So we don't know for sure if they worshipped water or had any, it had any spiritual significance, but it's possible. Anyway, back to the quote. Based around this are the numerous neuragic sanctuaries or the greatest of sacred springs, around which many other buildings and temples were constructed and sometimes connected. Substantial numbers of Nuragic's famous Bronzetti statues have been found near or within these areas. So moving on, pre-distinct cultures on the Italian peninsula, so um, main Italy, I guess, the boot, generally point to the presence of Greeks called Magna Graecia. Wow, I don't know how to say that. G-R-A-E-C-I-A. Greeks were present in Sicily, Calabria, Campania, 
Apulia and Basilicata around the 8th century BCE. We'll move on to the first evidence of tribal cultures in pre-Roman Italian peninsula slash boot is from 900 BCE. There were different tribes with their own cultures and languages, but they all had a similar mother tongue. The similar mother tongue that their languages derived from was Sabellic. They likely practiced local religions that revolved around trinities of gods, animal sacrifices, and looking for omens and everything from bird flight patterns to sheep entrails. So the divination from entrails is actually, I feel like, a common thing back in the prehistoric people's days. I've heard of it, at least. I mean, maybe the, the Romans got it from these people. Anyway, the Etruscans came about around the 8th century also. They were around Lazio, Umbria, and Tuscany. Their spiritual practices seem to be based around Etrusca Disciplina, a set of rules for the conduct of divination. It is thought that they practiced imminent polytheism with similar gods and goddesses to those of the Greek. And by that, I mean that there are gods of the sun, moon, sky, war, love, etc., like the Greeks had. Imminent polytheism is basically the belief that the divine is present on earth rather than outside of the physical. Then there were the Celts, who settled in northern Italy in the 1400s BCE. I'm not going to talk too much about them right now because there's just so much to talk about. And I, I mean, there's just so much. So, so like I said, this isn't everything, obviously. Well, for one, the Canagrate culture was in northern Italy before the settlement there of the Celts. And before that, the Scamazians and the Palata culture before that and the Remedello culture before that. So people have been in Italy for a long time, which is part of the reason why I think that it's so fascinating and I feel such a deep ancestral pull to it. But I'm particularly interested and excited by the Nuragic civilization. The Ozieri culture predates the Nuragi, but not too much is really known about the religion. They did have burial practices that we know about, though. We don't know what kind of gods they necessarily worshipped, but it's thought that they were sun, moon, and astrological gods. There's also evidence of bulls and doves being holy animals, and that there's something about water that is divine as well. And I would imagine that the Nuragic civilization got a lot from the Ozeri culture. Before I did this research, I didn't even know the name Sardinia. I didn't know that it was, I mean, I knew Sicily was there. I had no idea Sardinia was even there. But now, I definitely need to go there. Thanks for listening. 
If you want to support my journey in this, head to anchor.fm slash madeline-brown. You can also visit my website at 2, the number 2, boldly so, S-E-W, dot com. I'll have show notes there. Until next time.